Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And um, thank you for this reminder that we should all be gathering together in prayer to um, lift up uh, each other, lift up our community, whatever um, it is. uh, If there's a problem somebody has, the power of being together and praying is one that you've given us that is priceless. Um, I pray for this day that uh, everything goes smoothly, that uh, everyone that's out gathering bags is safe, and um, I just thank you for this community, the generous community we have here in Turlock, and um, everyone that um, has decided to donate food to our project uh, and our ministry. And uh, I thank you for the church community we have here and how so many people are willing to get involved and make this happen every year. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jonna. Uh, Good morning to everybody. People are avoiding this section right here. I don't know if that's the splash zone or what that is over there. Nobody's there, but anyway. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you guys and, and see if you've uh, had a similar experience to me. Um, have any of you come to the very edge of coming to a place where you were receiving something that you were waiting for, only to be told that you had to wait a little bit longer? Do you know what that feels like, Tim? Yeah, Tim and I have been walking through something very similar to that in, in his own life, but where you get right to that edge, you've been waiting a long time, but then you're told, you know what, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, Most of you know that we have been in the adoption process, or had been in the adoption process, for seven years, right? And that process began with actually a vision that was given to Sarah in our household of two African girls. She saw them from the back. It was a not a colored picture, but one in sepia. And she somehow knew that one of those girls belonged to the Fiorini family, and one of those girls belonged to the DeCanter family. And so God gave her that that vision. And then later that day, uh, when I arrived home, coming back home from Enclave, I I parked in the garage in the days when I used to be able to park in the garage. And uh, Sarah met me in the garage, in the van, and she's telling me about this, this vision. Now, Sarah was expecting that it would take some time for me to warm up to this idea. But actually, what happened in that moment was God put an image in my mind of puzzle pieces coming together. 
And I said, and I just kind of knew, yeah, that's right. Like, that's what our family is being called to do. And we went to go tell the Fiorinis that day. So from vision to committing, (laughs) maybe you should sleep on it if this happens to you. But for us, from the moment that we had that vision, like we went to go tell the Fiorinis and, and we were committed to being on that journey. And that led to all kinds of appointments, tons and tons of paperwork, and seeing all kinds of miracles happening in terms of adoption fees and like all this kind of stuff. We, we didn't think about all that. We just, we just started walking in that direction. And there was a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting. Even five years into waiting, we hadn't been matched with a child. So imagine that, right? And then we were finally matched with the child, and then we had to wait a year and a half before we got the green light to go to South Africa. And then even when we went to South Africa and we had temporary custody of our daughter Josie, we found ourselves in this narrow hallway in a courtroom in the middle of Johannesburg, and we were told we had to wait a little bit longer for the judge to finalize our adoption. We were told it would take about an hour. We were there for two hours, then three, then four, then five. We, not all the family arrived at the same time, so some was only about five, then six, approaching seven. So we were there all day. And what do you do, right, when you're waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Um, In John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus repeatedly reminded the apostles that one day he was going to soon go back to the Father, and he promised that he would send his Holy Spirit. And as we saw at the beginning, first 11 verses of the book of Acts, just before he ascended to the Father, he reminded them, hey, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit but only after you wait in Jerusalem a little bit longer. And what do you do as you wait for God to fulfill his promise, for him him to work? That's what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to look at the beginning part of a passage in the book of Acts that records the time between the ascension and Pentecost. The the time of waiting for the church then. And we're going to try to answer two questions from the passage regarding that interval of time. One is, what was the church doing during that interval of time? And then who was involved? Because each of those answers are significant. So let's first think about what they were doing. When I think back at my time in in that narrow hallway that day in the courtroom in Johannesburg, I remembered this past week some of the thoughts that I had that kind of like flitted through my mind. One major thought was, why is this taking so long, right? We had gotten there mega, mega early. Our, Our social worker told us, man, if you get there really, really early, then that will reduce the time that you are there. So we were the first ones there by far. All right, we're decanters, okay? So you say get there early. Okay, we're going to be there early if it's going to take less time. So we were there very early, and then we watched as people trickled in after us, left before us. Trickle in after us, 
left before us. I mean, and then, you know, you get to hour three, hour four. You're starting to wonder, okay, did they forget about us? Did, like, do they have all of our paperwork? And you're thinking, you know, I'm thinking, did I leave some of the paperwork, like, on my desk in California? You know, you start wondering things like that. It, does, the, does the magistrate maybe have a, a prejudice against this whole idea? Like, these Americans coming in and then taking away one of our own? You're like, is that kind of going on? What's going to happen when we're finally in? Like, what kind of questions are they going to ask? Am I going to answer it in a wrong way that, like, puts the whole process in jeopardy? So these thoughts, they just kind of came into my mind, came out of my mind, came into my mind. And a lot of you guys were praying and knew that we were in the middle of this process. And I can testify to the fact that the overwhelming feeling, even with these thoughts flitting in and out as I was talking to God about them, was peace. That, that God was with us, that he was going to fulfill his promise. And you know what? He did. We waited a really long time, but then we were invited into the magistrate's office. We had a short, polite conversation. I mean, for you know, you wait seven hours like, hey, let's, let's just, you know, let's have a meal together or something after you wait that long. But it's just a short conversation. We, we signed a ton of paperwork. I don't know. They may have own half my assets. Now, I, I signed a bunch of stuff. I don't know what it all was. <clears throat> but now, then it was completed, right? We, we had officially adopted Josie. And it, and it was done, but there was that time of waiting and there was those, those feelings and those thoughts that went uh, along with it. And as I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think about that time in the hallway and, and wondering, with these apostles, I mean, what exactly did that feel like? I mean, we know how long it took, but when they're in day one, day two, day three, day four, um, most people believe that about 10 days passed. And if you do the math, you can kind of figure it out. Like if, if Jesus rose somewhere near the Passover, maybe the Feast of First Fruits, and then Pentecost is 50 days later, and then there's 40 days of resurrection appearances, you know, 50 minus 40 is 10. So 10 days of waiting. What were they, what were they feeling? Did they have flashes of anxiety the way that I did? What, what was going on in their minds? And we don't have record of that, but we do have record of what they did. And so back to our passage in uh, the beginning part of verse 14, we read there, all these, referring to the apostles, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So what were the apostles doing? They were praying. They were, they were talking to God about it. And that's kind of significant when you think about all the things that they could have been doing instead, right? They've just been told, you're going to be on this spirit-empowered worldwide mission, right? Your life is going to be significantly changed. There's a lot of opposition to this, right? They could have been strategizing. They, they, they could have been studying up on what they felt like they needed to know. Like if they continued with maybe some wrong ideas about the kingdom of God, they could have been collecting weapons, Right? Like, hey, we're going to take over the Roman government. But they're not doing any of those things. They're, they're praying. They're talking to God about it. Prayer is something that I think is, is difficult 
for people who like to get things done, who are doers. And I know for me, like, the bigger the task that is ahead of me, the more I want to start on it, right? I, I am not really given to procrastination, right? Sometimes I am, but, but rarely. Like, I just want to start on it. So I start working on it because I want to get past it, right? And so prayer can be, it can be hard for me in that moment for, you know, if God's like, no, I, I need to, you need to slow down, Andrew. You need to slow down because there's no way, you don't even know if you're supposed to do that. And without me, you won't have the power to do that. So you need to slow down. And it's hard for us, but prayer is so good for us. Because if you let it, it, it puts you in a posture of humility, a posture of dependence, a posture that I feel like is 100% essential. If we need to, if God is calling us to do something significant with impact in Jesus' name. Uh, one of the, the things that Seth uh, reminded me of, Seth, I don't see Seth to here today, but at book club last Sunday, man, book club is awesome. If you, I mean, I love hanging out with the, uh, those people and talking about the things we're talking about, really controversial issues and, and working those things out together, talking about how we can be on mission together in those controversial areas. But one of the things that Seth said that, that was impactful to me, he, he was letting us in on a very unique mission field that he feels called to. Uh, It's a card game, and I won't go into all of that, but he meets all these different people that um, many of whom are opposed to the things of Christ. And sometimes he feels like, man, there's just no way I'm going to break through to them in these relationships, given all that's going on in their lives, given all their stances regarding different things. And he said, you know, what I want to remember more is how powerful God is. And I I want to call upon him more. And I want to talk to him about it more because he will provide the power that I need to overcome some of these obstacles. And then guess what? God will get all the glory for it. And see, that's what... Prayer does. It puts us in that place where we begin to recognize, man, we really need God. Like it's not about me hustling and bustling about. It's about God's power and him making himself known. New Testament scholar David Peterson wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, and he noted this about prayer in in the book of Acts. He said, it is striking that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of God's redemptive action and acts, we find a mention of prayer. Before anything significant happens, there are people praying right before that. And so prayer is this thing that God has given us where we can call upon him for power, where we can express our reliance upon him. And so that's what the apostles did. What did they do during that time? They prayed. But then the book of Acts qualifies the nature of their prayer in two ways. They prayed persistently and continuously. That's what it means when it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. It means that they persevered in it, perhaps taking the entire 10 days praying or at least a large majority of it. And it says that they did it unified. They did it with one accord. Three English words to translate one word that basically means of one heart and of one mind. 
the book of Acts uses this word repeatedly to talk about the nature of the relationships of the brothers and sisters of the early church. God had made them one in Jesus. And isn't that what Jesus prayed for? Father, make them one like we are one. And we often pray for that here. And so here we find the first church. They're, 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 they're at their first meeting after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And, and how do we find them? Unified, together, devoting themselves to prayer before they even begin thinking about being on mission and waiting for God's power, like Jesus told them to, to go on that mission. And I think it's important for us as, as we go on mission and, and we want to do things and we want to see God do things through us. But if, look at the early church. They stopped and they prayed as one. It's significant that their meeting, their first meeting was a prayer meeting. But it's also significant who was there. And that's what I want to talk about next. In verse 15, it tells us that about 120 people were in this upper room in Jerusalem. So pretty large house, pretty large uh, room. But Luke highlights three separate groups that he calls our attention to. The apostles, a group of women that he calls the women, evidently so well known that you don't even have to list them out. The women, we'll talk about that. And then he talks about the family members of Jesus. So let's walk through those. First, the apostles are there. They're listed out in verse 13, where we read, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of of James. So these are the new leaders of the new movement of God in Jesus. But there's a couple of things I want to, for us to notice about this list. First, there's one glaring absence, right? Judas Iscariot is not there. He's taken his life, Matthew 27 tells us, and in the next passage, we're going to look at how the church responds to his absence. So he's not there. That's one thing to take note of. But another thing to take note of as you look at this list is that it is not comprised of anyone famous. I mean, they might be famous to us now, 2,000 years later, you know, church history. But then, no. No one famous. No one with any kind of political power. In fact, the majority or a big part of the list is comprised of people we hardly know anything about. These are the apostles <laughs> right? And, and a good chunk of that group, we hardly know anything about. We know some things about Peter, John, Matthew. They wrote parts of the New Testament. We know some things about Thomas, right? We remember him wanting to see the scars of Jesus. We remember some things about James. And that's not even the James. That's the James that was killed in Acts chapter 12. That's not the James, the leader of the Jerusalem council. That's actually Jesus's brother, and, and we'll get to him. So we know some things about James. We know some things about Thomas. We know some things about Andrew. But how many of you know stories about Philip? And I'm not even talking about the Philip of Acts chapter 8, who was a deacon. So we know more about the deacon Philip than the apostle Philip, 
Do you know any stories about Philip? What about Bartholomew? Simon the Zealot. We know Simon Peter. Who's Simon the Zealot? What about James the son of Alphaeus? Anybody have some good stories about James the son of Alphaeus? Judas the son of James. Anybody? Like we don't know these, you know? The movement of Jesus is actually not about these men. It's actually about Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we can say some things about them collectively. They are often described in the Gospels as people who have very little faith. That's what we know about them. They seem to stick with Jesus for a while until at the end they don't, right? But then they come back together, right? And then church tradition tells us that every one of them minus John gave their life for their faith in Jesus. So we can maybe say one thing. These are men whose lives have been changed by Jesus. That's, that's what we can, we can say. And there's really not a lot else that they have in common. I mean, they're from Galilee. The first four mentioned are two sets of brothers that have a, a fishing business together. So there were some businessmen, I guess, in, in the midst of this. But there's really not much else they have in common. In fact, two of them would have never been friends had it not been for Jesus. I'm thinking now of Matthew, the former Roman tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, who probably belongs to a Jewish nationalist group, who is a sworn enemy of the Roman Empire. Right? But they're together in, in this group. So the first group that, that Luke highlights for us, who are there at this first prayer meeting, is this ragtag group of men who've been changed by Jesus. That's what binds them together. They were called by him, they walked with him, and they were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus was not dead, that he was alive. And they were willing to die to defend that truth. And now they find themselves waiting. They're just waiting for the Spirit to empower them to go on this mission, and they gather together in unified prayer. So the first group that are highlighted are these apostles. But then Luke uh, um, highlights a group known as the women. <laughs> the women. Evidently, so well known, you don't have to list their names out. If you go on and read a little bit farther in, the verse, in verse 14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Now this group likely included Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered... Uh, from seven demons by Jesus. And then this is one of my favorite things that God has done, is that God had Mary Magdalene be the first person, the first person out of all the people, to see the risen Savior. So the first witness that Jesus is alive, this is such like God, right? Like, whose testimony is often not received in the courtrooms during the first century? A woman's testimony. He's like, well, let's up the ante on that. Make it a previously demon-possessed woman, right? <laughs> She'll be the first witness. She'll be the first witness. Then there are other women there. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, probably there. Salome, Joanna, other women who were disciples of, of Jesus. You can learn about these women, if you look at the latter part of Luke and in the latter part of, of Mark, they had been following Jesus ever since Galilee. 
all the way to Jerusalem. Right? Some of them, it, they appear to have been wealthy because they funded Jesus' ministry, it tells us in Luke chapter 8. Did you guys know that? Some of these women funded the ministry of Jesus. But probably the most significant thing about them is what they were eyewitnesses to. Right? They followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. They were there at the crucifixion. Where were most of the men? Scattered. They saw where Jesus was buried. Men were scattered. They decided to make spices and perfumes to bring to the tomb. They walked there not knowing who would roll away the stone. Remember that? Where were the men? Scared in a room, in a locked room. And so that meant that they were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And at least some of them saw the risen Jesus. Right? And they ran back to tell the disciples about it. What did the disciples do with that information? They did not believe it, it says. They did not believe it. Peter and John, at least they ran to check things out. Right? And so here we have these, these women now at this prayer meeting mentioned side by side with the apostles in a time period where women are not highly regarded, Luke is highlighting the presence of these women. So we have the apostles, we have the special group of women, but then we also have Jesus's family. If you read verse 14 in its entirety, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus' mom is there and his half-brothers are there. His half-brothers are named for us in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. James, a different James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon. Now what's interesting to note about these half-brothers of, of Jesus is that what, think about what they felt about Jesus during his earthly ministry. You guys know? What's that? No, they did not at all. They were completely unconvinced about Jesus' claims regarding being the Son of God. They also thought that he had a severe mental illness. Right? And if you remember, in Mark chapter 3, they tried to put a stop to his ministry. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people in this, in this house, and they went over there and they were like, man, enough is enough. Right? So they show up at the door and it says they were there for they were saying he is out of his mind. So their idea is to go in and be like, yeah, sorry guys. I mean, this guy, you know, like we're going to, you know, so they think he's crazy. And then John chapter 7 verse 5, as Kathy was telling us, they don't believe in Jesus. Right? They, they do not regard his claims as being true. And here they are at this first meeting of the church in a prayer meeting. So that, that begs the question, right? Like, what happened to these half-brothers of Jesus? Let me put it another way. How many of you in the room have siblings? Okay, the majority of you. Would you, think about your sibling now, you've grown up with them, would you attend a prayer meeting 
where your sibling was worshipped as the sinless Lord of the universe. Think about your sibling. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. Like, I, I like my brother, but... And then add this. To great peril to your own life. Very dangerous for you to be at this meeting. Would you go to that meeting? There's no way I would go to that meeting. And yet we find all the brothers of Jesus there. What are they doing there? Like, and the only reasonable explanation that I can come up with from what we know is that we have record of at least one brother, James, having seen Jesus alive after he was dead. We know that from 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And was so convinced about this, that, and there's no advantage to doing this, right? Especially during the first century. He decides to, well, he didn't, I mean, who knows how it came about, but he eventually became a leader of the Jerusalem church. You see him at the Jerusalem council, for example, leading that whole council there. And then we learn later from church tradition that he died for his faith. And not some tradition like way late in the game, right? First century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he was killed for his faith. Evidently, he was pushed off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, landed on the ground, did not die. That's like, I think it's like a 40-foot drop. Doesn't die. Then they beat him to death because he would not renounce his faith in his brother and say that his brother did not rise from the dead. <laughs> People don't die for what they know is false. Right? And to me, this is just, it's just powerful evidence for the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. So think about the significance of the people who are here at this first meeting of the ascended Jesus. You've got some business people. You have one of whom is, you can't tell, maybe he, if you're there, you don't know if he's like the self-appointed leader <laughs> you know, in Peter, but you do know that he had denied Jesus just a couple of months prior. You know, that's, that's a strange part of the meeting. You have an ex-Roman tax collector. He's sitting by a Jewish nationalist. You're like, man, what is that about? You've got a, you've got a woman who was previously demon-possessed talking to some wealthy women. Right? They're praying together. And you got Jesus and brothers who previously thought that Jesus was crazy. I mean, you have uh, Mary. Did I say Jesus? You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then these brothers that previously thought that Jesus was crazy. It's just, it's just a very interesting group right? To, to, be, to be together in this one place. None of them famous, none of them having any kind of political power. And see, when I, when I look out at this room, and I know you guys, I see some people here who are pretty successful in business. I see some of you here who are really struggling financially. And, and I know here we are in, in, this, in this same room. I know some people here, this may shock you, <laughs> who lean a little bit to the left politically. I know some people here who lean a little bit to the right. Politically, here we are in the same room. I know some of you here really 
have struggled with addiction and maybe are currently struggling with addiction. I know some of you here who have had encounters with the demonic and maybe would have even said have been oppressed by demons. I see people represented here who are family members who are trying to just just figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in this time and place. And I hate to break it to you, I don't see anyone famous. I don't see anyone with political power here. Here we are together, and it's it's a powerful thing in and of itself. And my prayer is that we would, with one accord, devote ourselves to prayer, to rely on God, to wait on God, to be his witnesses in Turlock and to the ends of the earth. And so I know we did this a couple of weeks ago, and man, who knows, maybe, maybe God would have us do this a lot during going through the book of Acts. I have no idea, I have no agenda. But I want to call us to a time of corporate prayer um, even now, especially today. We're going to be doing a lot today. We're going to be real busy running around today. And and I think it's appropriate for us to just stop and say, God, this this is about you. And we can't do anything without your power. We want to be witnesses for you, but we're scared. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. God, would you come and fill us with your spirit? And and would you guide us? Even throughout our time of of assembling things together in the other room, we've asked Carlton if he would walk around and just with small groups have moments of stopping and acknowledging God even as we're bustling around. 